coming to you from the Barrier Islands Center on Virginia's eastern shore. This is Sharing the Mic with David Phillips. You can find this podcast on the BIC website, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Be sure to like and hit that subscribe button. My guest today is Bert Schmidt who has been a leader in public media for over 28 years. I'm sure his face is a familiar one to those who watch public television because of his frequent appearances during fund drive season. Bert has passionately sought ways to support local communities through programming and educational services in his 14 years as president and CEO of WHRO Public Media. Bert serves on numerous community boards, including the Virginia Aquarium, the Virginia Arts Festival, the Hampton Roads Chamber of Commerce, and the Norfolk Public Library Board. He previously serves as the chair of America's Public Television Stations, APTS, and as the chair of the Public Broadcast Management Association, now known as PMBA. Bert is the father of two adult children, daughter Jillian and son Bertel, and is married to Missy Schmidt, retired marketing executive for a global business management software company, and now devoted to kitten rescue and fostering. Since he arrived in Hampton Roads, Bert and WHRO have been friends of the Barrier Islands Center. Bert Schmidt, welcome to Sharing the Mic. It's great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Well, you're welcome. You're welcome. I want to get one question out of the way because it's a burning question I have. Uh, It's trivia. I learned in researching before you came over that the call letters for WHRO stand for Homeroom One. If that's the case, what does what do the call letters for WHRV stand for? You know, the story I'm told, which is before my time, is that they simply needed the, they wanted the HR something, and uh, it was going to be news, so they figured voice it was never really official. But that's the stories I've heard from Got it. leadership back then. Okay. Yeah. Okay, well, that answers my question. I always thought, and it was just, you know, it's one of those things that happened. I thought it was probably W. Hampton Roads something or other. Everybody thinks that. But, of course, what the story is, is back in 1961, two school divisions found WHRO, and they created Homeroom One, which is what HRO actually stands for. Mm-hmm. And uh, we started with two school divisions, and now we're owned by 21 school divisions. Right. And, Right. In reading your credentials, uh, I noticed that you've got a BS in accounting, Mm -hmm. a JD, which is law, and a master's in business administration. With those degrees, what was the catalyst for getting involved with public media? Well, I was a tax attorney for Pricewaterhouse in New York, um, and then my father became ill. He had a stroke, and so I moved back home to kind of help out the family business, which was it was a retail variety, sort of kind of like a Dollar Tree back in the day, mm-hmm. um, but oversized, big castle and all this. But I was there for a few years. We decided to close the business. And the local station was looking for a new uh, chief financial officer. Uh, the original one from the day one had retired. And so uh, I actually knew a couple of the board members, and they connected us, and they ended up hiring me as the CFO. 
10 years of that. And then uh, the station in Harrisonburg, WVPT, uh, they hired me to be their their GM. This was back in 2002. And then five years after that, in 2007, HRO hired me. So that's kind of my roundabout way, really through a financial background. But as as the CFO, I found that you you need to know something of everything because you're you're paying the bills, you're making sure the books balance, and so you really have to understand the whole organization. So I was a really nosy kind of CFO, so I got to know, know a lot of bits of the business that way. Uh, you mentioned earlier that uh, WHRO Media is owned by a collaboration of 21 local public school divisions, and it's the only public broadcasting station of its kind in the United States. Why is this unique, and what, if any, are the advantages of this kind of an arrangement? So there are a couple of public TV stations owned by a single school division, mm-hmm. Miami, Las Vegas, a few others. There are plenty of public radio stations owned by universities, but this is a collaboration of 21 schools. So the beauty is when we, and we meet regularly with the school leadership, I meet with the superintendents five times a year. Each school board has a WHRO representative. We meet with them quarterly. We meet with uh, the assistant superintendents, the technology folks, on and on. And so we know what the schools are looking for and what they need. And so rather than doing something 21 times, often those common needs are done through the station. It's more cost-effective. And if all 21 divisions need it, it's likely that uh, schools throughout the entire Commonwealth are going to need it. So we've been able to turn the work we do locally for free for our schools into a business. For example, we've produced 27 online high school courses. And for our schools, they get them for free. If you're one of the 21 divisions, you have them for free. They're in your school division. Use them however you want. But many schools around the Commonwealth buy our courses. So we are able to get more money to reinvest into even more educational work. So uh, it's been a great model to be able to bring really the entire region together from an educational perspective and identify the challenges they have and, and work together to uh, to solve those problems. What sort of courses do you create? Well, they're, they're primarily high school core curriculum. So you get algebra, algebra two, you know, the histories, the Englishes, the sciences, uh, oceanographies, uh, health and PE one and two, so the whole list. There, we have a few middle school courses. We're getting more and more into that space. We have some uh, career readiness courses. Uh, We're expanding the library every year. In fact, we're just starting to produce an environmental science course, which a lot of people in Virginia say we desperately need. So we've just hired the content experts. It takes about 18 months, and then uh, we'll be able to offer that course throughout the Commonwealth. And we just produced, in partnership with the uh, Governor's Commission and the Department of Education, the state's first African-American history course. So yeah, that that last year, 16 school divisions did it. They had some experience in the world of uh, African-American history. Now every division has access to the course and can teach it however they so choose, but uh, it's now available to every division in, in Virginia. Well, I've known for some time that the 21 districts, you know, did own the station, but I didn't realize the extent to which you were really involved with producing content for those divisions. What would you say is the percentage of the content produced for those as against just the public broadcasting uh, 
television and radio. We produce a lot of stuff for the schools. We have a service called eMedia VA, which is a digital repository of what we call learning objects. So it's got videos, audios, games, apps, lesson plans. And a teacher or a student or a parent can go into the system. And if they want to learn about the third grade SOL 1.2 through whatever the SOL is, they can do a quick search. All these different kind of learning objects come up. Whatever best way they learn, to, they learn, they can use that object in the classroom at home where the parent can, can use it. And we produce a lot of the content that's in there. Of course, we partner with lots of organizations to bring their educational content into the, into the service. So we've got national organizations like Smithsonian, Library of Congress, uh, PBS and NPR, of course. But then locally in Virginia, we've got dozens of Virginia nonprofits who take their educational content and share it with us so that we can share it with, with teachers. Because teachers want to go to one place and get their content. They're not really so concerned about, I want to make sure I go to this nonprofit or this nonprofit. They want one place teach the subject matter, and move on. And eMedia VA brings everybody's content together. Wow, that's impressive. Can you describe the process by which programs are chosen for the three different entities, HRO, HRV, and the television? Sure. They're, it's different. So on the TV side, we are a, a P, member of PBS. We pay them a single large fee every year. And basically, we can decide the program schedule within certain limits. We tend to follow the, the PBS recommended schedule because it's easier for marketing purposes if Ken Burns is going to be on. And in fact, it's going to be on um, next week. Well, as we're recording, Muhammad Ali will be the next topic. We want to follow the national schedule because of marketing purposes. We just jump onto their national marketing. But we can air or not air any show we want. If for some weird reason we didn't want to air Antiques Roadshow, of course, we don't have to. But we take a strategy of having as much of the national schedule as possible. And then we insert with local content, whether it's Thursdays, uh, early Fridays, Saturdays, others blocks, they're just open from PBS. So that's so for PBS, it's one fee, get the whole library. On the radio side, it's different. We pay a fee per per show. So it's a little bit more of a, okay, how much are they charging? Are we, are we getting good feedback from the members? Do people care about this show? How's the quality of the show? And so we, we go through a show-by-show process in order to purchase those. And we pay a smaller fee to, to NPR. On the classical music side, it's our announcers. We have a huge library of classical music and it's all of them, short of things like performance today where we bring in some shows. But the vast majority of, of the day is going to be our local announcers. Fascinating. So that sort of answered the next question. Uh, is it more difficult to program locally produced content than just to buy the already produced stuff from... Well, it, it's harder to make shows, of course, sure. than, than just buy. Um, but I think the beauty of public media is the local content we can produce. And whether it's a show that we make, like our, our art series called Curate, which uh, season six starts soon, or partnering with folks like the Barrier Island Center and airing the films that they've done here um, and working with other folks. Um, Dave Parker, we have a series now called Virginia Found that Dave Parker, a former weatherman, has put together that's done the Eastern Shore and many other uh, more rural areas. So it's a, it's a good partnership. It's a great chance to provide the viewer, viewer with a great local content. How important in the big scheme of things do you think that local content is? Well, that's what makes us different. I mean, we could be simply a pass through the PBS and, you know, they just 
um, we wouldn't you put, put a stick in the ground and retransmit. But the beauty of public media is we're truly a locally owned service. So it's not just the shows we do, but we'll do outreach around programs. Uh, we'll do a lot of educational work around it. So the show, it may start with a show, whether it's a TV show or a radio show, but we add much more of a local flavor to those programs. Correct me if I'm wrong. I believe there's been uh, a shift in your thinking about the news staff. Uh, and I'm just wondering, is there a move for the WHRO stations to produce more local news? Yes. Yes. We, um, I think we've all seen in the recent years that local journalism, um, there's really a crisis in local journalism. There's a, there's a great fear that the region could become a news desert. And I talked to folks left and right. I'll give you a statistic that's kind of scary. The, the pilot and the press, cumulatively 10 years ago, had 360 reporters. Today, they have 36. So 10% of their staff. So we've been talking internally, and we're talking with some community leaders about what role WHRO can play in ensuring that we don't have a news desert. We have a small core of Right now, five journalists on our team. They're doing great work. Even during COVID, they put over 350 uh, stories out, and uh, about 50 were carried statewide, and about a dozen were carried nationally. Um, and that's with a core group that started like two months before COVID. So I've been very impressed with their work. Tons of awards have been won, but we're looking at really ramping it up quite a bit. Um, Kind of undefined at the moment what that means, but I think we recognize the the need for more local journalists, and I think WHRO is positioned well. You know, our sixty year reputation, uh, the the distribution we have through TV, radio, and digital, um, a small core journalist. So I, we think we might be able to be impactful going forward in making sure local reporting is still done. Yeah, well, I was going to ask if that was kind of the result of. The recent sale of the Virginia yes. pilot, and well, and and we we looked at. I mean, our 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 reporters have been on board for almost two years now, so this is not a brand new thing. But we've seen over the years. I mean, if you know you're watching the newspapers, you've seen how they've changed over the years. I believe, and I think many people believe that without local journalists keeping an eye on things, some bad stuff can happen. So you need reporters at you know the 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 town hall meetings and and the the school board meetings and the city council and town council just to keep an eye on and to report on what's going on. You know, I I had an interesting conversation with a superintendent recently, relatively new, and schools kind of have an interesting relationship with media. Sometimes it's not so friendly. But as I talked to the superintendent, he said, as much as sometimes we get frustrated with the reporting, when there's no reporting. It's even worse because now parents think we're not doing anything when we are, but nobody's telling the public about it. So re the reporters are important to let the community know what's going on. And hopefully most of the time things are going on are good. But you'd have to have that conversation. You need eyes and ears out in the community, community so people know what's going on. What's going on. Right, right. Uh, as you mentioned, there has been a relationship between the Barrier Island Center and WHRO Media for some years. Um, and I guess that was an outgrowth of the documentaries that the BIC produces, the films by Jim Spioni. 
Can you comment on that relationship and why it's important to WHRO? So when I moved to Virginia and I was running the station in Harrisonburg, I put a big map on the wall because I really didn't, I knew like where Richmond was and Virginia Beach and Roanoke and basic outline of the state. But I was in the Shenandoah Valley, didn't know much about the Shenandoah Valley. So I put this big, I mean, it covered the whole wall. It was probably 15 feet diagonally. And I saw on the map this little stretch of land. I said, well, what's this thing over here? And they explained that it was the Eastern Shore. Okay, other side of the state, but now I'm in, get hired by WHRO, and I'm traveling to Syracuse regularly because I have family up there. So my kids were up there. And so every few weeks I'm driving the Eastern Shore. Didn't really know the Eastern Shore, but was driving it. Thought, okay, I can go as fast as I want. Got a few speed tickets. I, I contributed to the local economy. But then um, I was saying, look, we have to, I have to understand the Eastern Shore that's part of our broadcast area. We have to make sure we're serving all of our region. And fortunately, Laura and Sally reached out to me and sent me a packet of information about the Barrier Island Center. And it was just the same time we were talking about it internally. I said, oh, I got to call these people. We called, we met, and then the film started. And the Barrier Island Center is WHRO's home on the Eastern Shore. We love it. We love the relationship. And uh, and Laura and, and Sally have been amazing partners for a long time. Well, that's good to hear. That is good to hear. There seems to be a marked difference in the overall feel of public radio and TV in the last five or so years, like many more sponsorships. It's beginning to feel just a little bit like commercial radio and television. Can you comment on that? Yeah, I'm not sure the statistics would play out properly because the same number of what we call avails for underwriters is there. Um, It it may be that we're doing pretty well in getting underwriters. A lot of people want to be on our air, so there might be just a little bit more of that. Uh, we have to be careful that these things don't sound like commercials because we're limited by the FCC. I mean, we can't have call to action. We can't do comparative. You can't say you're the best thing on the world or, or you can save money or come to our store. So there's a lot of limitations. But um, we're also required to identify companies that support the program. So it's a balance. And I know for many people it can be confusing. Um, it's it's an important part, but it's less than 10% of our total revenue. Oh. Well, that's interesting. I was thinking perhaps it was uh, due to lack of government funding or a, a drop in government funding because you're always reading in the paper that uh, they're going to cut public yeah. radio and cut public television. Every few years, we we tend to become a, a, a point for some politician to make. Uh, on the TV side, funding is the same and now creeping up a little bit. Um, uh, on the radio side, about the same. The biggest cut we took was in Virginia. We used to get state funding for our educational work, and that was eliminated about, uh, well, during the McDonald administration, they eliminated all of our funding for education. So um, that, that actually ended up closing WVPT, my former station, when they made those cuts. And the Richmond station took over for the Shenandoah Valley. We've been able to be okay because of, we've really taken an entrepreneurial attitude to our company. You know, we are, even though we're tax exempt, we're a business. And I got 100 employees and want to get paid every every two weeks. So uh, we treat ourselves like a real business. And we've been successful at it. In terms of the financial support for WHRO Media, can you give us the approximate breakdown of public individual contributions versus corporate sponsorships versus government and foundation? 
support. Yeah, I'm not sure if these numbers will exactly add up, but we have a budget of about 16 million. We have 5 million in members, membership, people who call in during pledge drives and become a member at a certain amount of money. About 10% of our money goes through underwriters, which we just talked about, the, the corporate supporters. About 35% of our total revenue is around education. All the work we're doing in education, whether we get funding from the Department of Education to do certain work or by school divisions. So there's a whole mixture there. Uh, we have entrepreneurial revenues. Uh, we have about 13 towers in the region, and we will lease space on those towers. So we're making about uh, a million dollars there. We also lease out some broadcast spectrum. That's another million and a half. Um, I'm missing something. Oh, federal funding is about, again, about 10%, uh, a little less than 10% of our total revenues. We did this past year get some PPP funding and some other CARES Act monies, that one-time money. Um, but that's a rough breakdown. Uh, the beauty is we're not beholden to somebody that's, you know, 50-plus percent of our revenue, short of our members. Our members are our most important uh, source of revenue. And when you have 24,000 of them, our goal is here to make sure our members are happy with the programming we're providing. Looking back at your time at WHRO, what are the initiatives or things that you feel most proud of? So um, first off, and probably the most important thing for any director of a nonprofit is make sure you're financially stable. Uh, when I got here, there was basically no endowment. Today, our endowment's over $16 million. Um, we are able, we're financially quite healthy. We covered depreciation every year in our operating budget. We've been able to grow. We were an $8 million company when I got here. We're, like we said, $16 million today, getting a lot of awards. People are getting healthy raises. So financially, we're in really good shape, which is not something I could say when we first got here. So I'm very proud of that. The education work is the other piece I'm very proud of because early on when I got here, there was kind of an attitude of, yeah, we're owned by the schools, but let's meet with them once a year. And it's a weird thing in our bylaws, but let's kind of, it's a little bit of a separate, I embraced the relationship. And when I got here, there were, I think, 16 school divisions. We've had five since I've been here. And really just, we've had conversations with the schools to say, what do you need? What do you want? So all these things we've talked about earlier about the education work we've done happened while I was here. And it's not because we're smart. It's because we listen. And the school said, hey, you know, online courses are going to be a thing. Help us out. You know, all the services, whether it's early childhood education or all the great work we do, it's because the schools said we need it. And there are enough schools together that all said, yeah, we do too. We do too. Let's do it as a group. So I think those are my two big things, the financial and the educational. And I'm sure they were happy when the pandemic came along that you were there and you had content. and. Yeah, you know, we've been very experienced in the world of online learning, and we had lots of conversations. Um, of course, we offered our courses not, not only to our schools, but we offered our courses nationwide for free during the pandemic. Um, our e-media VA system, we opened up over 90% of that content to everybody for free. You didn't have to log in. And then the state came to us and asked us to create, they said to us, look, a lot of kids don't have internet access, and they, they can only, but they can get public TV. Can you do something? And then the schools said, you know, online learning doesn't work for our youngest kids. You know, putting a, a first grader in front of a computer to learn all day is just not ideal. Can you help? So we created a program called Virginia TV Classroom. We worked with teachers. They did, in effect, Zoom lessons. They gave them to us. We turned them into TV shows. And for 
well over, well, about a year, we did three hours a day, every day of classroom instruction from from K through seven for from really when COVID started till about nine months later. That's very impressive. Well, it's the relationships we have with the schools that a superintendent can just call and say, we don't know the solution, but I know the problem. Can you help? And when you get a few people calling, calling us and saying, help us, we put it together. And I've had an amazing team that did all this work. I just said, yes. I said, here's what we can do. My guys had to do all that work and kind of drop everything else and create, in effect, a TV show, local TV show, three hours every day for quite a long time. So it was quite an endeavor. Um, and we kicked it off two weeks after we, the, the first, first phone call came in. Now, that is impressive. I mean, just the little work I've done with this podcast, I know the work that's involved. Yeah, a lot, lot of work. Yeah. Well, have you got anything that you'd like to share with us? Well, I'm just, I just love the partnership here. Every time I come to the Barrier Island Center, it puts a smile on my face. I just, I, I just love being on the Eastern Shore. Uh, the relationship with Laura and Sally is really, they're dear friends of mine. Uh, I'm thrilled that Sally has joined my board, right. which I'm very happy right. about. Um, and we're always looking. I know that um, there's a new film we're working on right now. Looking forward to hearing more about that. Right. Um, and just, I, I just, I'm glad we can serve the Eastern Shore. We've expanded the radio stations out here, and we've, uh, we've, as you've aired a few of our series, you know, uh, our our Eastern Shore and a few other series that we've right. done. So it's just. I'm I'm really happy that we've been able to expand our partnership on the Eastern Shore, and, and that's a real thrill for me. Well, the people on the Eastern Shore certainly do appreciate it. I can tell you that. And I want to thank you for taking the time to be with us today. Well, thank you for inviting me. It was a thrill when I got the call. As Bert mentioned earlier, several years ago, WHRO Public Media did a series of short spots called Our Eastern Shore. On each of our podcasts, I will revisit one episode. Listen. Have you ever wondered how Hog Island got its name? You're listening to Our Eastern Shore. Hog Island, one of the barrier islands off the coast of the eastern shore of Virginia, has had several different names over the centuries. The original patent from the 1680s identifies the island as Hog Island, alias Shooting Beach. There are several old wives' tales on how the island got its present name. The most popular speculation was that a ship carrying a cargo of hogs wrecked on the shoals of the island, and the shipwrecked hogs swam ashore. Some say the island was named for the hogfish, which was found in abundance in the island waters. The earliest record of settlement on the island is 1672, when 25 colonists were granted a patent to the island, then known as Machapongo. After living there for an undetermined amount of time, this first colony simply disappeared, with no clue as to their fate and no records or descendants to solve the mystery. Our Eastern Shore is created by WHRO in partnership with the Barrier Island Center. Funding has been provided by the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities. You have been listening to Sharing the Mic with David Phillips, produced by the Barrier Islands Center, Sally Dickinson, Executive Director, Kristen Dennis, Office and Marketing Manager, Megan Ames, Director of Planning and Development, and Tracy Jones, Director of Education. The Barrier Islands Center is located at 7295 Young Street 
in Machapango, Virginia, 23405. The website is www.barrierislandscenter.org. If you have comments or questions about this podcast, please direct them to bicpodcast at icloud.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe. If you'd like to support the Barrier Island Center with a financial contribution, go to the webpage, barrierislandcenter.org, and hit the support tab. Until next time, stay safe and be well.